Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Everyday Muslim. If you like this podcast, please make sure to share it with your friends and family. If you'd like to support it, go to patreon.com slash emuslimpodcast. We just started a video version of the podcast, so if you'd like to check it out, the link will be in the description. Lastly, thank you so much for all of your support. Assalamu alaikum, I'm John. How are you doing today? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Uzair, alhamdulillah, we're just excited about 2021 here, trying to have a fresh uh, new year. Right, alhamdulillah. So in this episode, we're going to be continuing back where we left off on the seerah. And so when the Muslims began to live in Medina, a new government began to form. And to control this new government, um, the constitution of Medina was written. So what did this constitution contain and how can it compare to the historical documents that this country was founded on, like the Magna Carta? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, it's very interesting because the Prophet ﷺ and the companions, they're living now for 13 years in just a very small minority. I mean, your standard Sirah historian, around 250 people max uh, Muslim converts in Mecca. So there's a small group over there in Mecca, and no ayahs have actually been revealed about some sort of or organizing a social order of, of a legal system or a law or um and the general you know ayat came about being patient with your uh, adversaries and those who are rebuking and ridiculing and uh, even attacking you be patient overlook pardon forgive you know win, win them over with your character and your manners so right after the Prophet ﷺ and the companions arrived in, in uh, Medina, obviously the first thing uh, which any Muslim community should do when they establish themselves in a place where they can practice their religion freely is to build a mosque. So they built the mosque, and once the mosque became the center of the daily life and the five daily prayers and the place where all deliberations and all gatherings and, and different meetings would, would actually take place, um, the Prophet ﷺ have, has already, through one convert, Abdullah bin Salam, uh, communicated uh, to him about Islam, and he said, you know, he converted. But then whenever he talked to him about the Jewish tribes and the Jewish people of Medina, it was an unfortunate, uh, they're not going to follow you, they're very rigid about their tribal understanding of prophethood and that it's within them and that they will not even entertain the idea, much less listen to your evidence and so forth. So the Prophet ﷺ knows that there are still within Medina, um, you know, large body of polytheists and Jews that still live within Medina. And then around Medina, there are Jewish tribes uh, there, three of them. And so the Prophet's first order, um, with some scholars put it at the sixth month period after Hijrah, that he uh, had dictated for Ali ibn Abi Talib to write down um, it's like 40, 50 some points. Um, so some people refer to it as a pact, uh, which is more of a social contract uh, order than a constitution because it doesn't outlie a whole governmental system, which is more of a, a constitutional type uh, thing. Um, uh, but um, it does lay out the interactive policies and, and sets guidelines and boundaries of how people should interact and where there would be a problem uh, legally in this pact. So in this pact, things that are amazing, respecting a diverse group of religions, meaning it's very explicit in this treaty or in this pact that 
There are three Jew, there are three religious communities here, but they all form while they have autonomy. So the issue of autonomy is written in. You have your religion, you practice your religious rituals, you have your own taxing system, religiously or otherwise. The Muslim authority, which is this this pact is announcing Prophet Muhammad as the actual ruler of this city. And it's making his being uh, the prophet of God and the religion that he is teaching as authoritative. And in that authoritative teaching of theocratic rule, it's it's saying that Christ, the Jews and, and, and polytheists and have the right to remain on their religion and follow their way and nobody should be taxing them or treating them uh, any differently. And then it outlines things about um, how they support each other. So nobody is expected to take part in any battle um, other than the Muslims, but the Jews would defend against any aggressors that came into the town uh, if it happened, and the Muslims would have to defend against anyone aggressing against the Jews. So there wasn't this uh, exclusive, uh, you know, monolithic way of thinking. That was definitely not the way the Prophet ﷺ understood. And what's interesting is these polytheists, according to the Qur'an that has been revealed, they're engaging in the worst possible sin. You see, that's a very important element to put, you know, when people talk about things that we're dealing with here in America, you know, they're like, oh, we would never be part of this because it's so so bad and we would never interact with or form a relationship of, of mutual understanding with these people because they do such and such. Well, the Prophet ﷺ was here in this treaty, in this pact, defining the social boundaries and in, in order uh, in, a, in a legal terms that, you know, those polytheists, they, they have their right, they have the polytheism. And that these Jews, you know, we respect them as well. Also within this treaty was the issue of criminal accountability. So the issue of what we now call habeas corpus is written into the Treaty of Medina that unless somebody produces a witness and there is evidence, no one can be charged with a crime. And, and it singles out Muslims as the ones who should be the leaders in exemplary citizenship. That if a Muslim has been accused of a crime, they will, the evidence will be brought and they will be punished just like anyone else. So this equality of all these three groups, forming one nation of people, is mentioned in there, and there's this sense of, of even-handed justice written throughout the whole entire thing. And relaxing for the polytheists and the uh, Jews in matters that are more towards the advancement of the religion of Islam or the ambitions of the state uh, as a whole, this relaxes their responsibilities. So it's it's an it's it is probably in world history the most significant document that has led to what we now call modern democratic, um, multi faith, multicultural society. Um, so five centuries later in uh, Europe, when they wrote the Magna Carta, interestingly enough. The way I was raised and, and hear, her, hearing about it through world history and things like that, Magna Carta is presented as this huge constitution. Well, the Magna Carta actually 500 years later, it took like four installments. And each one is literally just a, sm a smaller version of the Medina Pact, right? So it's just outlining social... Um, legal social order boundaries. This is it's a pact as well. So the Magna Carta was not a constitution. So it did not formulate a governmental structure and, and functionality and system, right? 
Um, it wasn't until the United States of the Constitution uh, that we have in the early in the the late uh, 18th century um, when that was established, um, and so the claim that um, number one that the idea of freedom and democracy is somehow foreign to Islamic uh, teachings or the prophetic model is a lie, and that the Magna Carta was the first document to inst- to introduce and institute these things is is completely unfair and completely erasing history about what is in the Medina. So anything that's significant about the Magna Carta in terms of establishing a free society where there is no class systems, where there is no um, oppression built into the way rule works, which pretty much all monarchies and others have always had, you know, different elements of built-in oppression. So all of that exists in the Medina Pact. So it's something very significant in world history, and it's something that um, should be taught in our schools, but is not. And that is an o- omission that is not honest about world history, and it is clearly an affront to Islamic civilization, intentional affront. It's a, so that's something that we as Muslims need to study it. We need to study the comparison, and we need to be able to present to our neighbors the truth of this issue. All right, so I'm just going to um, ask two things before I go to the next question. And the first isn't really a question, it's more a statement, but um, we just need to point out that the Muslims did live under a different form of government peacefully for 13 years, right? Exactly. So it, there were, and this kind of ties into our next subject a little bit, there were on two occasions, Omar and Abdurrahman bin Auf, they came and suggested to the Prophet ﷺ that they assassinate their abusers and their oppressors, that they would take a vigilante um, you know, thing, which we've seen with some of these... Uh, modern extremist Muslims who claim to be all Muslim or whatever, ISIS or whatever, and they do things like murder people at places, you know, Orlando or San Bernardino or whatever, and they're saying, you know, that this is somehow Islam. Well, the Prophet said no. When the Muslims were a minority and they were actually being abused by people who were abusing them, who were murdering Muslims and abusing Muslims, he said you cannot assassinate them. Right? Imagine someone who did not even do that, how the Prophet would have responded. Mm-hmm. Of course, Without any question, a consensus of historic Muslim scholars, without any question, even your average Muslim would know shooting up a club or shooting up a gallery of a Christmas dinner is absolutely antithetical to everything Islam is about. But the story that went around and so many people understood, when I say so many millions of Americans and millions of others, tens of millions, understood that these people's fanatical understanding of their religion, fundamental fanatical, that their religion calls for the death of opposing religions, people who have different religions than you, you know, that you should just be killing them to prove your point or to uh, get back at some injustice, which we know the people at this club, nor did these people at this dinner uh, gathering have anything to do with oppressing Muslims. And then this is a slight tangent, and it is a question, but was the adoption of the Constitution of Medina or the Medina Pact, was that also the beginning of the first welfare state? How do you mean? Because um, I've often heard that, like, Islam started, like, like the Islamic Empire started the first ever welfare state. So was the Constitution of, Med- of Medina the beginning to that? You mean where, where the state uh, welfare, like guarantees... Redistribution, yeah. 
uh, like they guarantee the basic rights and, and things of the, the people that live in it. Like social welfare as in um, the redistribution of wealth, like the Sakai No, system. yeah. So that, that was not there. It was very much just respecting everybody's right to be who they are. It was a very libertarian kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? That's actually probably the best way to um, represent it. And and what's interesting is is that many people think libertarianism came out of the rejection of religious imposing but it was an islamic theocracy that brought this libertarian way of thinking as a way because islam is very rigidly strict about respecting everyone's right to believe what they want to do believe and to live their life however they want to live unless they're hurting someone else or their property right um, that's where Islamic law would say, no, you're causing harm in society uh, to people or property, and so then therefore you'll be held accountable. So if, if, if in the entire Islamic history, if, if Jew or, or Zoroastrian or Hindu or Muslim or Christian, if they did something like, so if they're drinking and selling alcohol amongst each other, in Islamic law, historically, that's their right, even in Islamic lands, you know, and it's caliphate as it were. But when they start selling it to Muslims and we now find Muslims drunk and it's like, where'd you get this? Oh, I bought it from the Christian guy. Then it becomes a problem. It's like you you should choose not to give this to a Muslim. So here they say, oh, well, Islam. No, Islam is saying if you say you're a Muslim, then own that. Right. Don't go around saying you're Muslim and then you start drinking and you think that's normal. And then people are like, well, you know, that's normal now. No, it will never become normal for any Muslim. It's a major sin to drink. So if you say you're not Muslim, then okay. Now you you're not Muslim, you know. So uh, that is uh, yeah, that is the, the the essence of that. So the concept of social welfare came under Omar's time, um, and he instituted so many policies that would be seen as socialism. I mean, Abu Bakr he made the statement, but because of what he dealt with in his unique circumstances for eighteen months as a caliph. Uh, in terms of you know infighting and lack of clarity about what happens after Prophet Muhammad died, peace and blessings be upon him. But Omar for 10, 12 years, you know his his whole thing was establishing a just society. So a lot of the policies and attitudes were what would be now considered socialist. But of course, socialism as a theory of governance and economy did not exist yet because that is a a you know break. It's like basically a branch off of Marx's communist ideas, which comes many, many centuries after Prophet Muhammad. Um, so the beginning of proper, healthy socialism, which is democratic socialism, uh, is rooted in the religion of Islam. Right. So now we'll move on to the next question. And that is, when and how was the Medina Pact adopted on top of the like already there like form of government? And what kind of opposition was there? So the there was no written form of government before that. The way Yathrib functioned was a tribal society that allows every tribe to make its own laws. And then the so while there's Aus and Khazraj, inside of Aus and Khazraj there are different factions. And there are different kind of heads, nobles, figures. And so it's really just about those noble figures, whatever they feel, and because of this idea of trickle down values. So when the that was why it spread in 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 Yathrib when it became Medina, because some of the no, many of the nobles, like twelve of them, became Muslim in in a short period of time. So then, you have literally a hundred under each, you know, maybe fifty to a hundred under each of these twelve that see that as this noble representative of our tribal, you know, all these cousins and aunts and uncles and all these people, 
they are respecting his leadership, and and so now they're all going to follow his religious uh, conviction. So right? it was it was an anarchy before, and they were happy to see a new written form of government. This blew their minds. You know, everybody was very happy. There was no opposition to it at all. It was it was a tribal anarchy that really created opened the door for all kind of problems, and it, it was usually economic interests as well as tribal authority. That those are the two things that either created peace or destroyed it so now there's a system of actual ethical moral values that are outlined in principle that everybody's going to sign off on nobody challenged it now there is if we're honest with ourselves there is an over exaggeration that all jews agreed to this and so as the ahzab is like a big treason but the way we read it is those jews who were inside of medina and those jews who were directly connected to medina so it wouldn't have been all Jewish tribes that actually uh, agreed to that. Right. Because some of them were considered suburbs that are quite outside of Medina. So um, I know that you're, you're starting to get a little bit short on time. So should we cover the call to fight back? next week, or would you like yeah, to I think it's better I think it's better to wait till, till next week because I think we should just go on ahead and go into in one period. Why was there an army formed? What was the scriptural basis and what was the reasoning behind it? What were these raids that took place? Because, you know, there's some secular, you know, modernists that that try to discredit the Prophet ﷺ while still wanting to be Muslim in culture or something like that. And they use this as some mockery to our religion and our prophet. Um, and, and then just talking about the nature of war in the religion and ha as it panned out in the Prophet's time and then for obviously thereafter for many centuries as a result of the construct of the world. So I think that's going to be its own day. Yeah, so inshallah, that'll be our topic for next week. Inshallah. Inshallah. So thank you so much for your time today though. And Zakallah khair. Appreciate it. Alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.